Cappuccino with Constable Brian. Real people, real stories. Okay, so my guest today is Dr. Michelle Locke, plastic surgeon, head of department, and correct me if I'm wrong with any of this, Michelle, mm-hmm. uh, at Middlemore Department of Plastic Reconstructive and Hand Surgery, senior lecturer, and she's even looking at my notes already, we haven't even started, senior, senior lecturer in uh, surgery appointment at Auckland University of Auckland, trained at Auckland Uni, plastic surgeon uh, at various tertiary hospitals around New Zealand when you were doing your training. You are a member of FRAX, which is... Fellow of Royal, uh, Royal Australian College of Surgeons uh, with distinction, uh, which you have to have a minimum of 12 years training to do. Is that correct? Check that out. Medical and surgical education, including five years of specialist and graduation training, two years of fellowship training in Toronto and Atlanta. In 2011, she returned to New Zealand working clinically at Middlemore Hospital, specialising in breast reconstruction, and became the head of the department in 2019. And just four months later, we had a volcanic eruption on White Island. And all that and more, she's also a hockey rep as well. So, my great pleasure to welcome Michelle to the Cappuccino. And as a sort of side note, I've known Michelle since she's been about 12. And this is why you should always be nice to your friends' little sisters, isn't it, Michelle? That's right. I was wondering if you were going to mention we've been friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to. Of course I was. Yep, all good. Right. So, speed round. I know that you've listened to the podcast at least once. And we all know that speed is the greatest movie because it has Keanu Reeves in and it's about police officers. So, what would be the greatest uh, scientific discovery imaginable for you? Oh, ability to teleport somewhere. There you go, Doctor Who, come on down. Uh, Favourite place you've travelled to and why? Florence. Italy is so beautiful. There you go. If you could be an expert in something else, apart from what you are, what would it be? Oh, that's a tricky one. Um, Maybe an expert in finance, then I could make some decent money. There you go, right. Uh, Least least favourite school subject? Chemistry. Which is surprising. Uh, last fiction book that you read was what? I was going to say the last book you read, but I've seen the amount of research you do. Yeah, there's a lot of textbooks in there. Yeah. The book that's sitting on my bedside table is called The Bad Mother's Book Club. Um, apparently, this book club only reads wine labels. Um but I bought it at the last school holidays when I was supposed to read it on holiday and I never actually got around to reading it yet. So I couldn't even tell you what the last fiction book I read was. There so you go. Now, fame is different for us all. So who's the most famous person that you've ever met? Uh, besides you. Yeah, yeah, stop it. Get away. Yep. Um, most famous person I've ever met. Mm, does Jacinda Ardern count? Yeah, that'll do. Uh, yep. Knew her when she used to do books and homes assemblies with me, but that's another story. Uh, did you start off your interest in plastic surgery or just to become a doctor when you left school? So just to become a doctor when I left school, I didn't even know what plastic surgery was until I did a rotation on the ward um, as a junior doctor. Okay. And what was the attraction of plastic surgery? There's a couple of things I loved about it. One was that um, I really loved the people. In mm-hmm. some surgical specialties, you'll be surprised to know that the people are not always the nicest. Right. Um, but plastic surgeons were welcoming and friendly, and I love the work. Uh, I love the variety, and uh, it just seemed like a really creative um, job that I'd enjoy doing. If you couldn't do what you're doing in your particular field of medicine, and you had to do another form, what would it be? Um, could I do another form of surgery? 
you can do anything you want. You're the doctor. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I almost did, um, did general surgery. I enjoyed colorectal surgery because, again, I had um, a great team that I was working for uh, until I saw the light and went to plastics. But I'd, I'd have done general surgery otherwise. There you go. Right. Now, when you prep for surgery and some of your – what's the longest surgery procedure you've ever had from where to go? Like hours, times? Oh, so the longest surgery I do routinely would be about 12 hours. Okay. So we do 10 to 12 hours worth of surgery for a bilateral breast reconstruction when we're doing a microsurgery recon. All right, so how do you prep for that? Because what does that look like mentally and physically? I've had uh, jiu-jitsu champions in there. I've had sports people in there. <laughs> I've had uh, police officers and everything else. We've all got our own little game that we play to mm-hmm. mentally get into the game. Um and I know as an emergency service worker, you know, very often you'll do that. It's going to, we are going to have to work hard. We're just going to have to get on and enjoy the ride and everything else. But what do you do to prepare if you're doing a 12-hour operation? Um, so I start the night before, make sure I get a good sleep. Mm-hmm. That's the number one thing for me, actually. Um, I like having a good team. I'll always get a second surgeon that I work well with to work with me so that we can actually take breaks if we need to um watch usually i'd look through their ct scans beforehand just to remind myself of the anatomy so that i mentally plan the surgery in my head where i'm going to go to find the best blood vessels and where they're going to track to yeah um and then just get on and do it boom there you go right yeah like most most of us in the business i guess so to speak what's the longest operation you've ever done yada yay without taking a break yeah uh, i wouldn't go more than about eight hours without taking a break yeah now one of my co-workers asked me this question and i thought yep i've got to ask the question toilet breaks toilet breaks <laughs> now we all know that you have got your scrubs on you've done your procedures you've uh-huh. done your pre-ops and everything else is it a matter is it like a basketball game do you call a timeout um and go uh, hang on for a second, team. I'm done here, or so. Well, it depends. The first thing is during surgical training, you learn to be a camel and not go to the toilet <laughs> yep. very often. Yeah. Um. So you know, often the whole day goes by, and then you realise oh, I haven't actually peed. Yeah. That's okay. So that's very helpful. Um. But for the really long cases, the 10, 12 hours, we do take um, a break. But often we're doing it with two surgeons, and so one will keep operating while the other subs out, and we can sub each other out from time to time. But if you need to, and it's a long case. Then yeah, you go and have a timeout, and the patient stays asleep, and the team just waits for you to come back. Now, many of our TV shows, when you watch um, plastic surgeons, uh, for instance, and we all know that none of it's kind of true, although they've got some probably got some fairly good consultants. Nip Tark, uh, House, Grey's Anatomy, all those types <laughs> of stuff. They're playing music during surgery. Yep. Um, which I know for a fact that you do. I do. Yes, you definitely do. Right. Okay. Um, how do you maintain focus? For that length of period, I mean, it's not like uh, you're busy singing and dancing like they do in some of those um, shows, but how do you maintain your focus with what you're doing and what's actually in front of you for such a long time? Do you mean while the music's playing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So um, I guess when you're doing surgery, even a long case, there's parts of the operation that are easier and less technically demanding than the other parts. Yep. So, um, you know, sometimes if things are really difficult or tricky, you will ask them to turn the music off and you'll ask people to stop talking in the theatre because you need to focus on this part. Um, but a lot of it is stuff you've done routinely many times before and you can, 
you know, chat, sing along. It's kind of like driving a car. You know, when you're first learning to drive the car, you've got to pay 100% attention to every single bit. And then after a while, you can have the radio on and sing along and actually you're still driving the car and you're just paying attention at the important parts. Do you get that witty banter that we so often say, well, I know, for instance, that it happens with ambulance crews and police officers and firefighters, but do we? Do you get the witty banter of, you know, sort of, you'll be asking one of the nurses how their date was last Saturday or something else like that? Oh, absolutely. Yep, yep, okay. yep. and especially the, the surgeons that I'll operate with um, to do the longer cases. Um, we're good friends and we yep. operate together all the time and, uh, yeah, we have we have some good chats. All right, so uh, all those TV shows, and I get asked this all the time, you know, do I watch police shows? No, I don't. They're uh-huh. far too realistic and violent for my liking. I tease. Uh, but do you watch any of those medical shows as sort of a guilty pleasure? I I used to watch Grey's Anatomy, many, many series of Grey's Anatomy, because um, I enjoyed the show and I just had to put my medical knowledge to one side because, yeah. of course, that was just a completely, um, this would never happen in real life kind of medical yeah. stuff. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the personal personalities and relationships, that stuff I loved. Um, otherwise, what do I watch these days? Um, I watch The Odd Bit of Botched. That's quite fun. Their yep. plastic surgeons are really good surgeons. Um, yeah. The patients, some of them are crazy, man. Yeah. Um, but it's really interesting to watch how they would manage a difficult situation and some of those crazy consults that you'd only get in America, and thank goodness, not so much over here. Yeah. Does your ethical alarm go off when you watch something like Boff? botched and you get somebody come in and go I want to look like Dolly Parton mm. uh, yeah yeah so it was really interesting you mentioned before I did my um, some of my fellowship in America I spent six months in Atlanta and that was really eye-opening for me looking at what some of those American women in particular would come in wanting which is very different than pretty yeah. much anyone in New Zealand wants um, you know, over there, they have huge breast implants and things that no one over here would dare to put in. No. But over there, the attitude is much more like, well, there's lots of plastic surgeons. So if I don't do it for her, she's going to go down the road and find someone else. Yeah. And since I'm a better surgeon than that surgeon down the road, I might as well do it for her. Yes. Nothing then... to do with getting the money or anything like no, that, yeah, exactly. obviously. Exactly. Um, yep. But yeah, there's. Yep. Uh, it's not so much like that over here. No. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. Mm-hmm. What went... Uh, through your head where you just become the head of department at Middlemore Hospital and then just a short time before COVID has raised its head just a little bit not mm-hmm. too much mm-hmm. right, you become head of the department at Middlemore Hospital mm-hmm. woo career opportunity this great you know great stuff I've sure. worked really hard for this can you remember the first time you heard about COVID-19 um Probably on the news at home rather than even at the hospital. Yeah. Um, you know, when we were just starting to hear about it coming out of China. Yeah. Um, maybe even in Europe. Uh, my biggest concern when I first heard is we had a holiday planned to Europe at, at Easter in yeah. April. And so then we're starting to, you know, hope there wouldn't be any trouble in Europe at that time. And next moment. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what went through your head when it was obvious that COVID was going to come to New Zealand at some stage? As... I mean, I know that you're a mum as well, but as an HOD and being a doctor and a surgeon, was this was this great big fear of sort of, you know what, I might end up working in the needy department, working on people yep. who have got COVID-19? What, what were your oh, thoughts? Oh, absolutely. There was a lot of fear around that, um, especially most of the stories we'd already heard and on social media and all of our friends who live in Europe. And the stories that came out 
were coming out of Italy in particular were just awful and hospitals overrun and ICUs overrun and the staff dying, which mm-hmm. was one of mm-hmm. the concerns because they didn't have proper PPE, they weren't managed properly. Um, yeah, there was a lot of fear that that would be what we would have to face over here. How much has it changed? Because I know that even now, you know, we, even though we're COVID free, we're still COVID weary, I guess you'd say. Mm-hmm. How much of it has change your day-to-day business and how much of a I'm going to say hold up but that's not quite the right word how much of a hindrance is it to you actually getting on and doing your surgery I mean are you having to do a lot more time to it and no so at the moment we're really lucky things are um, as close as as close as back to normal as, yep. as we could hope for. So at the moment, it really isn't uh, changing much at all. There's some minor changes at the hospital um, in the visitors' policy and tracking who's coming in and trying to limit the numbers. And there's more masks available if you want to wear them. Um, and there's much less tolerance of uh, coming to work sick. I mean, we used to have a yes. lot of um, presenteeism, if yep. you call it, turning up when you're unwell, and that's not allowed anymore. But otherwise, our life is back to normal, and we're really lucky. During the covid during the lockdowns and even the, the lockdown lights, um, things were a lot more difficult because if there were people around who had um, who were even suspected of having COVID or had any symptoms, uh, then we had to use full PPE if they were going to theatre and that took a lot longer, the whole processes of gowning up and cleaning the theatres and things afterwards. So the amount of work that you could do and the length of time that it took um to do any even a simple operation was um, was much different. Were you scared like a lot of emergency workers I spoke to? I mean, we were going through scenarios in our heads of right now. If I get this, I'm going to put myself in the garage and you know family members lived it, or maybe I'll go to a motel or a hotel. Mm-hmm. Was that running through your head as well? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, you'd, you'd do a you do a shift um, and then come home and take all the clothes off in the laundry straight into the washing machine and shower before you would you know go out and hug the kids and things yep. and and I was lucky you know I'm, I'm a plastic surgeon I'm not exactly frontline ED ICU um, people who are highly likely to be exposed to mm-hmm. it so there was a lot of fear. Uh, we had a phenomenal response in New Zealand with COVID let's we be did. honest mm-hmm. and we also had some fairly good luck as well let's be honest there as well. Do you think the average New Zealander because I don't think they have, but do you think the average New Zealander really has an idea of how close we got to this thing going and as a pandemic through New Zealand or not? Because it seems to we're kind of a bit sort of, not blasé about it, but we're like, yeah, you know, that's the rest of the world's problem. We're free now. Yeah, I think... Um like you know with the retrospectoscope it's easy to look yeah. back um, but at the time when they locked us down so quickly there were a lot of people who um, were either one end of the she- the the, the um, one end of the scale they were either really worried and panicked the other end of the scale said why is this even happening you know this is a major overreaction we don't need to do it um, and I think you know those people who thought it was an overreaction still think it is yeah and, yeah uh, and then yeah you get those people who do the conspiracy theories as well. Yeah, mother. there's all of those. But I think those of us who are in healthcare are pretty grateful that uh, that it went the way it did. Yep. Is the vaccine, I'm not going to say vaccine, I'm going to say vaccines. Vaccines, are they the, them. Yeah. Are they the discovery of 2020, as far as you're concerned? Yeah, I think, um, you know, one of the great things that has come out of this is vaccine research um, has taken off. And all of a sudden, there's been resource put into it, money put into it. And I think that, um, you know, this is really one way that will help bring the pandemic 
levels down around the world, but it'll also benefit us for years to come with yeah. um, vaccine development for other problems in the future too. Yeah, and I think that a lot of people actually haven't thought about the spin-offs for other stuff as well. It's not just sort of a, oh, we've got rid of COVID and all the people who are doing vaccines will disappear now. So. Yeah, I mean, I do research at the University of Auckland and, you know, research takes a long time normally to progress anything, to get anywhere. It's hard to find research funds. It's difficult to progress stuff. You know, the speed with which they've managed this in so many different ways is really incredible. Yeah, and then there was a, all of a sudden a use for the people in the stuffy old labs who wore white coats all day. Eh? Yeah, <laughs> Amazing. When they're there to save you, they're everybody's friend. Um, so, uh, White Island eruption mm. happened, mm. you were HOD, can you remember where you were when you first heard the news, and what was your first initial reaction, I'll just, I'll give you a little bit of a play here, so, um, one of our superintendents, the superintendent who was in charge of Christchurch, when he heard about the tragedy that was happening down in Christchurch, um, he said he walked into an elevator, took a deep breath, thought to himself, oh my goodness, and then started to as he did he said he switched into kind of a professional mode can you remember where you were when you first heard about it and what your initial reaction was sure yeah so um you know so i took over head of department in august last year um and you know i wasn't even sure it was really the right role for me um the department is still 75 percent male mostly older than me yep uh, um, we're going to talk about that as it well, was, as well it was yep. a well-run department i <laughs> thought to myself you know what could possibly go wrong yep. and then white island right you know yep. a couple of months later and i it was monday afternoon i remember it well i was actually um in my consulting my private practice that afternoon and i usually have my phone on silent um and it rang because i could just see it ringing on the on the desk and i ignored it because i always do and then it rang again immediately afterwards and I ignored it and as soon as that hung up it rang a third time at which stage I uh, said you know do you mind if I get this because I think it's probably something important yep. and that was about 3, 3.30 in the afternoon and that was really just the people who were on call telling me they'd had heard that there was this eruption but no one had any information and uh, you know the rest of that afternoon the information was really slow to come through and really very variable when we first got it there might have been no one injured there might have been a hundred people injured mm-hmm we didn't know, so we were really just all kind of on hold, waiting to know what would happen and to know um, how many people we were getting. So I ended up going back into the hospital that evening. Um, our first patient arrived about seven seven thirty that night. Yeah. Um, so we took um, I took that patient to theatre while the burn surgeon stayed in ED. Again, not really knowing who was going to be coming next. Yeah. So I remember it well. Right now. Uh, Middlemore's been treating burns patients for over 50 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been the Middlemore Hospital Community Cop and I've seen some of the first hand, some of the cases that you deal with. Um, it's also part of the National Burn Centre there as well. Can you run us through in layman's terms the process after a severe burn? Um, so I come to the ED department, mm-hmm. I present, I say, well, I've, I don't know, I've fallen into a bonfire and I've burnt the left hand side of my body obviously I probably wouldn't be talking because I'd probably be yep yeah, an awful lot of pain but somebody was with me what's the next step from from there so the first thing that we'd want to do is um, cool you I yeah. would hope that yeah, after yeah. your burn you got yourself on some cold water but once you've made it into the emergency department the emergency de- department team are going to look after you they're going to call in um, the burn surgeons they're going to call in intensive care if you're needed so you know a lot of the time you can still be 
talking to us unless you've got an airway burn or a major problem. So we're going to be making sure that your airway's okay, your breathing's okay, um, that you're not losing too much blood, going to get lines in to give you fluid and pain relief. They'll put a breathing tube down if, if needed, mm-hmm. you know, if you've got bad airway burns or something like that. Um, and then we're going to take you to an operating room uh, to fully assess your burn, um, give it a, a clean, and then probably start the debriding, which means cutting off the burn, the debriding and grafting process. Look, look, doctor, it's even in my notes. Oh, it so is in your notes. You right, use the right Thank word. Thank you very Brilliant. much. Yeah. Yeah, so, uh, and then obviously you, after you've done that debridement mm-hmm. and you have assessed what's going on and everything else, I may or may not be considered for a skin grafting or yeah, whatever. Yeah, so it yep. um, depends on the type of burn and the depth of it. You know, if you've got some relatively superficial burns that we think are going to heal by themselves, then sometimes you'll just get a clean, you'll get dressings, and we might leave your body for 10 days, two weeks to see how well it heals itself, Mm -hmm. and then just come back and graft the bits that um, need grafting. But if you've got a major burn, and it's clearly deep, you've fallen into a fire, you've been caught in a house fire, something like that, then you're going to need all of that burnt area removed, and then that needs to be grafted with your own skin um, to heal in the long term. So the biggest issue with the major burns is that they often don't have enough unburnt skin for us to do all of that grafting mm-hmm. in one session. So for a major burn patient, it's quite a process where you'll graft whatever you can from the unburnt areas. Where you take the skin from, it's like a graze. We take the top layer of the skin, but it heals up from underneath. Mm-hmm. And so if they haven't got enough for us to graft the whole thing, we have to wait for that donor site to heal, which might take two weeks or so. Yeah. And then we harvest it again. Yeah. And then we'll use that tissue to graft some more. Right. So when you're looking at a skin grafting, are you looking at a particular site? I mean, I know people who've had skin grafts mm-hmm. um, from the buttocks, yep. from the back of the thigh. Mm-hmm. Uh, where else? Back of the arm, maybe? I can't remember. Uh, Is there any sort of ideal spot that you're looking for? So if it's a small um, graft that we need, then we try and put it somewhere to best hide the scar. And it is often the buttock or the upper thigh because then you can wear shorts and stuff and nobody sees the donor side. If it's a major burn, honestly, we'll take it from anywhere we can get it. Um, We can shave the head and take it from the scalp. Um, We can take it from the scrotum if we need to we can get skin from anywhere and we'll take whatever you haven't burnt the back's quite good if we get a choice because the skin on the back is quite thick so it actually works well for multiple rounds of healing and re-harvesting obviously thinner skin you can't harvest it so many times yeah now uh, me and a colleague were talking about this New Zealand's got a great record with plastic surgery, obviously, it's Sir Archibald McIndoe mm-hmm. um, and his guinea pig club. Um, and for those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, Google search it. I'm not going to explain that. Um, but does as a plastic surgeon, do you ever stop and think to yourself, what the hell was going through that person's head when they thought of doing this? And I'm going to mm-hmm. later on. We're going to talk about one of your procedures, known as the DYEP, right? Yep, a right, yeah, flat, yep, just, okay, right. yep. Perfect example, right? Um, mm-hmm. Without, do you, do you, as a plastic surgeon, do you look at some of the techniques that you're doing and going, man, when the first person that did this, did this, what the hell did they think was actually going to happen? Yeah, well, most, most of the time you think, you know, the first person who did this, they were really brave. Yeah. Wow, they're really brave to yeah, try yeah. that, yeah. you know? Um, but it's amazing if you look back the history of some of the procedures, even things like, um, 
nasal reconstruction. Um, Tagliacozzi in, in Italy, there's drawings of them using uh, tissue from the inner arm and attaching it to the nose and actually yeah. having the hand attached to yep. the head for weeks until the, the blood supply would come you know, through the nose and then they could divide it. Um, but people put up with an amazing amount of stuff. Yeah. So you know, every time that we are grafting something or moving a, a flap of tissue around, it's because for many, many years before us, everyone who's come before us has, has stretched the envelope a little bit, um, tried something a bit different. And as long as you've got a good theory behind how it should work and a good knowledge of the blood supply and a knowledge of the anatomy, then you can try these things. And you hope that each generation of surgeons is adding refinements and technical stuff yeah. as the time passes. Yeah, yeah, we just get better and better at it. You're not wrong. It's, but it's, it's, yeah, it's a mind, it's a mind blow. Um, major burns that normally there's not enough skin for, mm -hmm. you use very, we'll use uh, donated cadaver skin yes. uh, as like a biological dressing. And I know mm -hmm. that when we had the volcanic eruption, you actually said that you spent millions of dollars on skin. <laughs> we did. Yeah, skin yeah, yeah, very yeah. expensive. Without going into too much detail, <laughs> how do you organize something like that? Because it's coming in from overseas, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So, well, um, a great, we have, great some reason skin, to donor. have some skin in yeah. New Zealand. Yeah. The blood bank um, looks after skin donations for us. But the amount of skin we had here obviously is nothing like no, enough to manage no. those kind of things and we do often bring it in from mostly from america yep actually they've got quite a good um well organized uh donor service yep. there uh and you purchase it and it comes in frozen yep uh, and we have a um regulated freezer at minus 80 that we keep the skin at and so we we keep a stock of it yep. um, in the freezer right outside the burns theater so that when we need it we can defrost it and use it use like it. that and there we go and so when we need more and more of it at times like white island then we actually already have those supply chains um set up and we know who to go to i mean we were really lucky white island didn't happen during covid yeah. because actually getting stuff from overseas then it took us a couple of days to get it in but now it might take weeks or months and then we'd have been really in much more trouble yeah not wrong now i've read reports that you normally do an 8 30 to 4 30 day and to be honest for those <laughs> where of you, did you read that uh, yeah, yeah exactly yeah i mean now not then uh for those of you who have uh, sitting there going, well, that's a nice crazy number honest to god the, the amount of stuff that michelle puts into a day i that i've researched about i'm like holy i thought my day was busy right but um there were some times that you were operating uh up until sort of 10 or 11 p.m uh, right from the very go in morning mm -hmm. when White Island happened, mm -hmm. right? Um, how do you unwind after all of that? Because, um, and I've said this before, you know, for me, I'm coming home after a, a fatal car accident or something else. It's turning up some music, it's listening to something, it's doing something that makes me feel good. And you kind of mm -hmm. have to do something in the moment. I mean, everybody, like I've said previously, you're a hockey rep, so uh, your outlet's obviously playing hockey and getting yep. out at the weekends and yeah, everything else. But in the moment, you can't just sort of have a whip round and say, okay, come on team, I need to have a game of hockey and get it off my chest. Um, so how do you do it yourself personally? Um, yeah, that's a that's a tricky one. So if I can just go back to the beginning of this, we don't work 8.30 till 4.30. Perfect. The theatre list 
might run yeah. technically from 8.30 to 4.30. But if you want the list to start at 8.30, you'd better be there at 7 or 7.30 in the morning to yep. see and consent the patient and to get it all sorted. Um, and then even if you finish at 4.30, there's lots of paperwork to do afterwards, rounding on your patients and that kind of stuff. So, uh, yeah, anyway. Um, <laughs> That's when... Michelle's for. <laughs> Bad question, Constable Brian. That's all good. Yeah, no, I'll take that. Yep. And when it was White Island, um, then we would start, yeah, first thing in the morning and we ran usually three or four theatres during the day. Um, Then we would run a couple of them into the evening till 10 or 11 o'clock. And for the first few days, we ran one overnight as well. So we were operating um, 24-7 for the first three days just to try and get all the major burns through. Um, And unwinding after that's really hard. We have um, a good group of people that we work with which helps um, because you do want to debrief and unwind sometimes with people who understand what it is that you've been through Mm -hmm. Um, obviously not at that time but we do go out um, we go to the pub uh, together and 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 unwind there Um, I'm like you I turn the music up in the car on the way home and sing along to some some stuff um, and try not to uh, take it home with me I have a meditation app. I use Headspace sometimes. Yep. Um, that helps just to clear my mind, especially if I'm trying to get to sleep. Um, I use that sometimes. So yeah, and there that. are professional counselling services available, but um, it's not that's not everybody's. Um, have you got to way. do that as a mandatory thing? Do you have to go and see? Uh, a council is a mandatory thing. Is this no? Plastics? No, okay. no, we don't. There you go. Check I that do out. wonder sometimes whether we should. Yeah. Um, Hey, and, and uh, yeah, and some of the services do, but we don't in And obviously working in a close team, it's I guess it's a little bit like the police. You get to keep an eye on your workmates and you can mm-hmm. see when the wheels are beginning to get a bit wobbly. So, yep. all right. So uh, for those of you that uh, were listening before and I said to you about the operating theatre and the music and everything else, and you thought, well, that kind of sounds a little bit like Grey's Anatomy. I'm all <laughs> over it. Uh, your skin normally regulates at your body temperature, but burns patients have very little skin that can function normally, so their bodies can't regulate that's correct that's right, it? right yeah they, they lose heat really yep. easily so uh basically when michelle's operating very often her operating theater will be at about 32 degrees mm-hmm. celsius so that they don't have to regulate it they can just stay normal right that's exactly right otherwise they they lose temperature really quickly so they keep the burns theaters between 28 and 32 degrees to keep the patient warm so for all those people who who been complaining about wearing a mask during COVID or, you know, the fact that it's quite hot and they're stuffy and everything else, or they're wearing body armour, for instance. Um, what is it like working in that environment? Because before we even sort of get there, you've got your surgical scrubs on, you've got your PPE gear, you've got your mask, um, mm-hmm. you've got your, and I'm going to probably get it wrong, is it loops? Loops, yeah. Yep. You've got your loops, magnifiers, mm-hmm. uh, you've obviously got your surgical hat on as well because yep. you've got long hair uh, and all that type of stuff. You must just be, it must be like walking into a tropical situation and basically saying, throw the hose at me because that's what's going to happen, isn't it? It sure is, yeah. It's really warm. So um, the the surgical scrubs are cotton, but when you're operating, you've got an impervious um, full-length long-sleeve gown on, usually double layer of gloves, mask, eye protection, hat. Um, and what do you do? You, you just sweat 
Yeah. Oh, and you just sweat. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and it's hot. And one of the things we did do during White Island was, you know, have a fridge outside and just keep it full of cold drinks Powerade because you're losing so much sweat in there. Yeah. You just go straight out of the theatre and uh, get yourself a cold drink and uh, change into some dry scrubs, take a wee break and go again. Boom. Uh, do you very often, I mean, it's a common thing for police officers to do where you will get home, we think we've had enough to drink because, you know, we've sort of had maybe four or five glasses of water and gone, oh my Hang on, that was over like 10 hours. It's, I'm, I'm guessing I'm dehydrated. I've got a mm-hmm. bit of a headache. Do you very often do that or do you actually have to self-regulate yourself and say, I've got to have... I do with my long cases. Yep. Um, if I'm operating for eight, ten hours, uh, I'll take one break in the middle, but that'll be a one, you know, 15, 20 minute break to have a bite of lunch and some water. And, and that may be all that I have during the day. So I try really hard if I know I'm going into a long case to drink water beforehand and always have water in the evening when I get home as well. Um, but yeah, it is really easy. And the, so the burns theatres are, are, are way worse yeah. for losing fluid, which is why we, um, during that particular time, made an effort. That was one thing we could do was provide cold drinks because when you come out that theatre, that's what you really want. Exactly. So if you're listening, Michelle's hockey coach, and she says to you, I'm feeling tired or dehydrated or anything else, she's been through worse, she can push on a little bit. Uh, <laughs> I had to. I had Thanks. to. Yeah. Uh, on call work, you've obviously done plenty of it during your time as a doctor. Yeah. How do you cope with that? I mean, I we've both done shifts in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, we probably both know the benefits of things like blackout curtains. And I know the most manly, manly men sort of police officers who wear eye masks and we, uh, have lavender pillows and the such like. Uh, what are some of your tips for coping if you're going to do shift work or uh, on call work? Because, I mean, you, like you said before, you know, you get a phone call at sort of two o'clock in the morning. Hey, doctor, this is happening. This is happening. You're having to think and then either go go into the hospital and do some stuff or actually give some advice and then go back to sleep. So mm-hmm. how do you cope with it? Um, well, I'm lucky now because I'm a bit more senior. Yep. I don't have to do quite so much shift work. So when I was training as a registrar, it's it's long days and nights and weekends. And a lot of that is you just get used to it. You get used to changing shifts. And um, sometimes I would um, take a sleeping tablet just at the shift change to get my cycle, you know, to start sleeping. Yep. Um, but otherwise, I didn't really have terribly many problems with it because I was just used to doing it. I find it much harder now because I'm a bit older yep. and I don't do it so much. I'm out of training. So, you know, when I was called last night at 4 a.m., I find it hard to get back to sleep again. Um, mm. Sometimes uh, I'll use Headspace at times like that again just to try and calm me back down and, and get back to sleep again. But you do get quite good at waking up instantly and just being able to provide advice yep. over the phone because, you know, you can't afford to wake up kind of sluggishly. Otherwise, you miss half the history they're giving you over the phone <laughs> good work yeah right so hands and faces are considered considered specialist areas yeah uh for plastic surgeons why is that or is it just the because of the cosmetic aspect of it you know it's people's faces it's what people see it's hands that type of stuff or is yeah, it yeah some, some of it's that but it, a lot of it's more functional so you know your hands have to be um really mobile mm-hmm. um really supple so any um any surgery there any grafts you can't afford to have um thick scars that'll tether because it'll affect the person's function mm-hmm. um, same with the face it's really specialized tissue and um, and it has to function 
and it has to look good cosmetically. Uh, and so, you know, those are specialist areas. They take longer to work with, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, if people have burns in those areas, they'll get sent more rapidly to a, a specialist burn service to look after them. Now, speaking of faces mm-hmm. and the such like, I know that you did some time in Bangladesh for Women for Women. Oh, yeah. Yep. That was when I was on fellowship. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and I didn't realise until I researched it, but Bangladesh has actually got a, quite a high rate of acid attacks. They do. They, um, yeah, so Women for Women was a charity run by um, IPRAS, which was an international plastic surgery society, and it basically would send female surgeons to parts of the world where um, – women were not allowed to see the mostly male doctors. Yep. So there were a lot of women over there who have all sorts of injuries that have never been treated because they've never had access to a female doctor to treat them. So uh, we would send teams of female surgeons, um, you know, up, up Bangladesh rivers and treating some of the women up there. And so they would have... Um, Acid attacks, dowry attacks. So, you know, um, if a um, mother-in-law didn't like her new daughter-in-law or didn't think the daughter-in-law brought enough dowry, uh, we had some where the mother-in-law had, you know, set the sari on light, which mm-hmm. is wrapped around their neck and so gives them bad neck and face burns. Um, acid attacks are more common on the young women if they spurn a, um, a young man's advances, for example. Yeah. Just horrendous stuff. Um, and and they're all out there with, with terrible scarring and uh and almost no treatment so yeah so that was the kind of um work that we were doing over there and again you know that was very rewarding i'd love to go back and and um and work there some more yeah and i'm going to encourage all the listeners to just type in women for women and uh bangladesh they're doing some stuff up in Papua New all over the world go and have a look because it's some amazing work and i'm sure that they would love either a contribution or just for people to know about to the know program. more about what's yeah. happening and because it's yeah, it's amazing work. Yeah. Mm. Now, often a burns victim, many without any experience, forget they just sort of see the oh, you've burnt your arm, you've burnt your your hands. They forget about the internal burns. Yes. The airways, which are mm-hmm. uh, you know are the Australian bushfires. Lots of people diving into their swimming pools at sort of eight hundred degrees plus as the bushfire goes through. At some stage, they're going to have to come up and take a breath. There's massive internal burning. Um, is that one of the hardest areas to reconstruct or repair, or can you just not do anything with it? There's not a lot you can do with it. So when they get lung injuries, um, the the treatment really is supportive care, yeah. um, intubation, oxygenation, um, trying to manage the lungs until the lungs get better by themselves. Yeah. Uh, and it is certainly a risk factor for... Um, not making it through a major burn. So if you've got a major burn and you've got an inhalational component on top of that, then those are both additive, really um, making the risk more. We had exactly the same problem with the uh, White Island patients as well because they were inhaling um, volcanic mm-hmm. toxic gases mm. and some of them got some really bad lung injuries. Now, there's very much a psychological aspect of burns recovery, which is a mm-hmm. very, very long process. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember from my time at Minimal Hospital and hanging out with some of the kids there, and we're talking about little children that were badly burnt, and as you'd be doing stuff, play, you basically were playing with the kids in the hospital, trying to make their day a little bit better. You'd see other parents' faces, um, and they'd say, oh, come away from those children, like there was something wrong with them. Um, so I'd have to go over and give them what I call an education session. Um, but do you think that society is getting more accepting of, uh, I'm not going to say disfigurement, but of people who are burns patients and the way that they look or the way that something is because of 
um, just general attitudes in society or not, mm. or is it? Um, it's hard to say. I think that society is getting uh, a bit more accepting of let's say diversity in many different forms some of which is scarring um, but all sorts of other um, potentially disabilities or differences between people part of that's because we're more open about it as well you know a generation or two ago anybody who was um, I'm going to use your term disfigured um, would often be hidden away and wouldn't be brought out into society and so it would be unusual and people would stare and I'm sure they do still stare but I do think that um that there has been some improvement in um, yeah. acceptance from society, but I'm sure there's there's an awful long way to go. Oh, yeah, definitely. All right. Now, Michelle to Brian, Brian to Michelle. Yeah. Uh, is it time for fireworks to finish, <laughs> uh, apart from public displays? Because I've been at Middlemore Hospital. I've seen the increased workload uh, for the burns unit there. With yeah, you never want to be on call on uh, no, on Guy, Guy Fawkes, Fawkes Day, right. that's for sure. And some of it is so tragic because it could have so easily been avoided. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think it's time for fireworks to kind of just do their thing and just be used in a public display or not? Um, uh, I guess uh, that depends a little bit on your views of the... Um, uh, nanny state. There we go. You know, fireworks um, cause all sorts of injuries, but then, you know, so do cars, so does alcohol, all yep. sorts of other things. And when they're used well and safely, they're not a big problem. Um, but I think part of the problem is that they're not used well and safely mm. and they, you know, uh, get into the hands of youngsters and they cause some terrible injuries. So, you know, the sensible way to deal with that is to only have them available in big displays. But um, I hear you. Yep. Okay. Now you're seen as an absolute specialist in the area of breast construction, reconstruction, I should say, mm-hmm. in layman's terms. Yep. Can you just explain to us what a microsurgical reconstruction known as a a DIEP, or what did you say? A DIEP? A DIEP flap. A DIEP, yeah, yep. a DIEP flap is. And again, it's one of those procedures of, again, completely mind-blowing to the layman because they're like, you do what? And mm-hmm. you do, yeah. So can you just kind of explain it? Because when sure. I was reading it, I was like, mm-hmm. So, yep. so that's a surgery where we reconstruct a woman's breast um, using her tummy tissue. So the tummy tissue between the tummy button and about the pubic hair, so in the lower tummy, gets its blood supply from an artery called the deep inferior epigastric artery and we use a perforator of that or DIEP, DIEP, um, as the blood supply and so what we do is we lift up this tissue, we find those blood vessels and we trace them all the way back down to the groin, clip off all the little side branches, free it up completely and then we take it away from the tummy and we move it up to the chest area. And then we use the microscope to reattach those blood vessels to some blood vessels in the chest to get the blood flow back into the tissue. And that way we can move the tummy tissue up to the breast area, give them a reconstruction with their own natural tissue, leave the tummy muscles behind because the older fashioned way of doing it took the tummy muscle to provide the blood supply, mm-hmm. which weakened the woman's core strength and, you know, 
all these women that I see and do reconstructions, they're way fitter than me. They're doing Pilates and uh, yoga every day yeah. and spin classes and they don't want to lose their core strength. So we leave their tummy muscle behind and it uh, gives them a good long-term reconstruction with their own tissue. So yeah, I think it's a great operation. But those are some of the longest operations I do. I was going to say, how long for that? Yeah, so to do one side usually takes between about six and eight hours and to do a bilateral, which is both sides, um, where we would divide the tummy in half and dissect out both sides' blood vessels and reattach them both. That's the surgery that takes sort of 10 to 12 hours. Yeah, because I remember seeing when I was at high school some breast reconstruction films. And I don't even know what we were watching, but there was talk of like removing shoulder muscles and bringing shoulder muscles around. And even though, I'm guessing that's all gone. And oh, it's not entirely gone. Yep. So um, there is still an operation that we use a muscle called the latissimus dorsi from the back. If you've ever gone to the gym and done a lat pull down, I know line, exactly where it is. Thank you very much, doctor. Yep, good, yes, good. Yep. Um, so yep. we, sometimes we swing that one around, but yeah, most people are keen to avoid using the muscle if they don't have to. Um, so we, you know, this is again one of those advances that's just happened as an improvement in surgical technique over time, uh, where more women would use their tummy now if they've got one. But there's some women who are really skinny and don't have any tummy, or they've had an abdominoplasty in the past and they haven't got any tummy for me to use. So there's still different ways. There's still plenty of women who get um, implant based breast reconstruction rather yep. than using their own tissue uh, and the back muscle I use that more as a backup if they've had a failed reconstruction right. than my primary but um, some of that's personal choice and some of that's what's suitable for the patient for you to stay up to speed with the latest surgical procedures and techniques mm -hmm. how much study do you have to do a week because um, I'm guessing it's a fair whack. Well, no, it's not because technique doesn't change that much that often. Um, we go to conferences every year. I usually go to at least two or three a year to make sure that my techniques are up to date and to learn new techniques. Sometimes you go to them and what you learn is that actually we do pretty well here in New Zealand mm -hmm. and, uh, and actually we, we know what we're doing. So, but sometimes you go and, and you learn tips and tricks. It's much harder now we can't travel. Yeah, I was going to say, Zoom calls, are you yeah, sick of them? Well, yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm sick of doing conferences by um, by virtual because, you know, it's quite engaging sometimes sitting in a room and being able to ask questions. Mm -hmm. And I honestly think half of what you learn at conference is when you're um, having lunch with the speaker or a drink at the bar afterwards when you can ask them, hey, I know you stood up and you presented that, but in real life, you know, do you actually get that outcome? And then they'll tell you, oh, well, no, actually... Yeah. You know, that's when you learn the stuff and that's what you miss when you're not there. It's also really hard because they're almost always in America or Europe. So they're in the middle of our night and you've got to try and stay awake and engaged yes. online for hours. Um, so it's it's far, far harder in the COVID world. Here's hoping that we can all travel next year and do all that stuff. I really do. Uh, but if I was a betting man, I'd say 2022 is probably better. I'd say better. 2022 yeah. too. All right. Stay off from the travel plans, Constable Brian. Uh, right. So... Overseas plastic surgery, you've done a lot of uh, fellowships to different places. You mm -hmm. went to Atlanta and Toronto and the such like. So is it worth the visit? Because like you said, we're doing some good stuff here in New Zealand. But if you're an up-and-coming surgeon, is it well worth going overseas and getting a fellowship and learning at overseas hospitals? Oh, absolutely. It's well worth going overseas. Um, almost all New Zealand plastic surgeons have done overseas fellowships. Part of that's because New Zealand's really small. Yeah. You know, by, by global standards, um, and we don't have a massive population base. So especially if you want to learn a highly specialized technique, you are far better off to go to a place that is has a much bigger catchment, is doing them over and over again. It's like the, the Dieppe flap. When I was training here, you'd be lucky if you did 
one a month here and that's not enough to learn on and get your skills up so I went to Toronto General and worked there for six months and they do three or four a week so you can do six months there and then come back um, and do well over here whereas actually if you're just trying to learn here it's really hard yeah what are some of the groundbreaking aspects of plastic surgery that we might see in the next 10 to 15 years so you'll be like Hmm. 27 and I'll probably uh, be like just like in my mid thirties. So, yeah, yeah, like so, yeah. like uh, for instance, when we do like battlefield uh, combat, we see like the jelly crystals that congeal blood. Right. Uh, yep. You've seen those? Yeah, it's super cool. And we're all going. Oh, I wonder when we're going to get those in our first aid kits. But what are some of the things that we'll see? Like we were talking about it in the office today. Mm-hmm. You've clearly got stem cell research that's going on. So mm-hmm. at some stage, hopefully, and I'm guessing we already do grow skin. Using stem cells? Well, we do grow. That's some of my research interests. You've been reading up on the have, Brian. You have Boom, yep. um, done your research. Yep. Love it. Um, yeah, but you know, we've been working on some of that. Um, some of those techniques growing growing skin in the lab. Been working on for the last seven, eight years. Yeah. And we're probably still several years away from a clinically useful mm-hmm. or commercializable product. Um, and that's part of the problem with research. Every step is challenging and takes a long time, um, especially money. when resources are scarce. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. And by resource, I mean money. Yep. Um, so what's the problem? Is the problem the fact that we can't grow the skin quick enough? Yep. Uh, yeah, so the cells yeah. don't grow very fast. And so a lot of the work we've been doing is looking at um, how to grow the different types of cells at the same speed and faster than they currently do. Uh, we also want to do it in a way that has minimal handling because mm-hmm. firstly that's a point where you can get infection and secondly um, that requires people and human resources expensive so you know if you want something that's scalable and not too expensive you need to either automate some of the systems or make them easier um, so there's all of those all of those aspects of it have to be um, improved and tweaked and got to a useful place before you can come out with a product at the end so if we're looking to grow uh, a piece of skin that's about the size of our palm uh-huh how long are we looking at at the moment four to six weeks okay right. that's a good. and what we'd like to do is get it down to the two to four week range because if you're thinking about um, who's it going to be useful for mm-hmm. so it's going to be useful for your major burns patients who don't have enough skin to graft in one round and need multiple rounds their donor site usually takes two-ish weeks to heal before you can graft again. What you'd really like is the next time they go back to, to take that, but also to have some skin from the lab that you could put on at the same time to decrease the number of you know rounds of can grafting they need. Do you think that we'll ever see a day where um, you do your debridement and mm-hmm. then you basically go, right, well, we're going to wait two weeks and then the skin graft, uh, sorry, not the skin graft, the, the stem cell skin will be ready and that'll be mm-hmm. the end of skin grafting or not? Or do you think there'll always be a need for it? I'd, I'd like to think we could get to that, um, but I guess if it's a if it's a small amount and you can get it healed straight away, you know, waiting a couple of weeks for the lab to grow some for you, you know, it's a couple of weeks you didn't have to have in hospital with raw wounds. Yeah. You know, the other way to do it is there's lots of things other than burns that we use grafts for um, skin cancer work, yeah. for example. Um, so, you know, it might be more useful in somewhere where your surgery is a bit more planned. Like if you had a skin cancer on your leg that I knew I'd need to graft, I could take a sample of your skin, grow that up, and in two weeks' time when the skin's ready, then take your cancer off and put the graft on then. Mm. I think when you've got a an urgent problem, like an acute burn that comes in, probably you're going to want to get on and sort that out straight away rather than wait. Now, there's a real shortage of female specialists. It's true. And doctors. Yes. And uh, that's something that you and lots of other doctors, true, have been very vocal about, mm-hmm. which I think is great. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the problem? 
because it, I mean, it's a great career. It's like you, uh, you've, I mean, your study must have cost thousands of dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, you work really hard for that career. Mm-hmm. And then is it an old boys network that's going on behind the scenes? Is it the fact that you're seen as and this is not my thoughts at all, so please, before you write in and start wishing me hate mail, please don't. Um, the fact that sometimes, you know, female surgeons and doctors, and I read one of the articles I read was a doctor saying, we're very often viewed as a liability by hospitals because of the fact that I might want to go off and have children mm-hmm. at some stage. Mm-hmm. What, what's the issue there? I, I just can't understand it. Yeah, so there's lots of issues. It's, yeah. it's never as straightforward as just one thing, Brian. But yeah. um, So, you know, in our department in plastics at Middlemore, we have, uh, we're 25% female surgeons mm-hmm. um, in the consultant staff. But if you look at the trainees who are coming through in plastic surgery, so it's a New Zealand-based training program, and there's takes five years, and there's, I think, 16 people on the training program at the moment. So there's about three a year. And of the trainees, we've been 50% female for several years now. And so actually, in terms of the pipeline of bringing female surgeons through, particularly in plastics, we're, I, I feel like we're doing quite well mm-hmm. in encouraging women into it um, and supporting them through it. But actually changing the number of surgeons, because your surgeon has a 30-year working lifespan, and 20, 30 years ago, they were pretty much all male, mm-hmm. um, to actually change the percentage of of male to female surgeons at a consultant level takes many years of those trainees coming through. So, so one thing is the you know the length that people work for. The, sooner or later, the older males will retire. Yeah, and there'll be more women coming through. Part of it's the surgical training. So in plastics, like I said, we have quite a few female trainees, but there's some specialties that really don't. Um, mm. They have far fewer women. Some of them are seen. Rightly or wrongly, as more maybe physical type specialties, orthopedic that, surgeons. Yeah, that was one of the like ones that. I read about. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so they would have fewer females, but um, but there certainly are some around, and it's not that they um, aren't necessarily supportive of it. But one of the things I loved about plastics was I felt like I was a good fit for the people who were in plastics, and so it is about you know finding the right space for you. Yeah. But there's that, but it's also long training. So I started training. Um, yeah, the training to do any of surgical specialty is long. So I did six years at med school straight from high school where we knew each other. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was what, 18 to 24. Then I came out, did a few years as a house surgeon, a couple of years as a junior registrar trying to get onto the training program. Because like I said, they only put about three people on plastics from the whole country each yeah. year. So it takes a few years to get on. Then I got on, uh, did five years worth of training and two years worth of fellowship. So it was... 19 years all up after high school before I got my first consultant job. And here you are at the age of 20, I know, 27. it's amazing, isn't it? So good. Wow. Yep. Well done, wow. you, Michelle. Yep. But those years are the years that you might generally meet a partner, yep. have kids, um, you know, all of those things. And so, you know, I put off having a family until I was older. Yeah. Um, but for some people, that doesn't work out. They can't put the time and effort in for the surgical training when they're trying to do that. You have to move around the country for your training, and that might not work for your partner if they're based in one area. There's lots of reasons that it's um, it's challenging. I think it's a great job, and I love it. I'm glad I did it, and I'm really lucky to have an amazingly supportive husband because mm-hmm. I couldn't do it without him. I mm-hmm. have two young kids. Yep. They're seven and ten, and my that's, husband's at home with them full time. I was going to say, that's the most important job, isn't it? Mom? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. So... Um, you know, I 
I can go to work at whatever time I need to go in the morning and, and come home whenever because I know that my husband's always there. Yep. Um, and that makes an enormous difference to me and not everybody um, has that support. Not wrong. So with all that mm-hmm. and all that training that mm-hmm. you've done, uh, let's pretend for a second that I'm a year 13 student and I get the chance because it would be a real big thrill for me to talk to Dr. Michelle Locke yep. uh, and go, right, what should I be doing what if you could give me like three sentences of advice what would you give me as a year 13 student that maybe is going to do it's pre-med isn't it that you do at uni as the the first year yeah Yeah. so they do uh, health sciences uh, and then look to Mm -hmm. get into med school from there and i would say that um that it is a great job you know there's there's no job like it um healthcare is amazing if you can work with a group of people um to better someone's life it's an amazing job but it's hard work Um, but if you love it and you're committed to it it's an amazing career done right now your loops box uh, and I'll put put a picture up of it so you can see as well safety glasses uh, you've got your magnifying op glasses your UE boomstick have music will travel yeah absolutely what music if I said to I might even get you to do it for me as a bit of a... Yeah, we'll do it that way. I'm going to... Because I know you've got plenty of time on your hands. Totally. I'll get you to do the Dr. Michelle Locke playlist for us. And I'll put down Dr. Locke's top 10 operating theatre songs, all right? I tell you what, I'll, I'll ask my registrars what they reckon they are. Boom, there you go. That's um, all good. Yeah, good idea. They're, they're, they're quite well trained at putting music on for me. They, they know I bring my own Yui Boom so that there's always music in my theatre. Spot. That's, that'd be great. Yeah, so all there right. you go. Good laugh. Right, so... It's usually something I can sing along to. It's nothing very highbrow, just to uh, be clear. No, that's all right. Uh, look, trust me, if you knew the number of police officers that were running around with Britney Spears or Ariana Grande <laughs> in their headphones as they were wandering around and everybody's going... Bet you they're listening to something like Motorhead. It's like, no, they're not. No. Uh, yeah. <laughs> they're not, they're not. Trust me, they're not. It's the beat. It's the beat. It's all about the beat. Uh, final question, and it's mm-hmm. the question we always do. Mm-hmm. Eulogy question. The day of reckoning has come for Dr. Michelle Locke, which probably means that Constable Brian's no longer here either. Uh, but uh, as you are lying there, you can hear what everybody's saying about you. What would you like people to say about you? Tricky question to answer because yeah. you never really want to think about it. I would hope my number one thing was that my kids would say that they loved me and that I was a good mum. I would hope that the people that I worked with said that I um, was a caring doctor and that I made a difference to some people's lives. Boom, you can't argue with that. So having had the privilege of knowing you since you've been about 12, Uh, Mm -hmm. If you're listening very carefully, New Zealand, these are the types of people that you should be looking at and going, wow, they are amazing. Because um, Michelle's an amazing New Zealander. Um, True, she doesn't kick a rugby ball around the field. No. But she does do some amazing stuff. Um, And no disrespect to people who kick a rugby ball around the field or do amazing things uh, and get paid a huge exorbitant amount of money. Uh, But when, as we say, when the... When the wheels start spinning and people are actually needed to help people, the fact that you can slam dunk a basketball isn't much good for the rest of us. So yeah, so um, yeah, just take that on board and uh, listen to what we've said. So thank you, Michelle. It's been great fun. My pleasure. It's great to see you again. You too. Cappuccino with Constable Brian. Real people, real stories. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss his next podcast.